Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are probably the most important parts of the book. In fact, I would say they are the most important parts of the book. We all want to gravitate toward the tribulation and what's going to happen during the tribulation. Um, That's the heart of the book for sure. Um, When you get to chapter 6 and you get in that tribulation era, we all want to know what the signs are. And I just want to tell you, there ain't no signs that has to that, that, that will come before the rapture of the church. He's coming for his church, I believe, before we go into the tribulation or before this world goes into the tribulation. I don't believe we go into it. Um, now, I know people dif- disagree on that issue, but I don't believe we go into the tribulation as the church. So, chapter 2 and 3 represent the church age. That, that represents that time prior to the tribulation. That began on the day of Pentecost and that continues to this day. It is the present age that we live in right now. And the reason I think chapters 2 and 3 are the most important part of the book is that our position in the church age determines our future in the rest of the book. And, and not only the tribulation, but also in that eternal um, future that, that chapter 20, 21, 22 talk about. So, so this is our opportunity to understand who Christ is and what he expects out of us in chapters 2 and 3. Um, we've talked about Ephesus. Um, the first letter to the first church was to Ephesus. They also have a Bible book written to them, the book of Ephesians. Um, and that church had the Apostle Paul there for an extended period of time, Timothy there after Paul, and John the Apostle spent some time at Ephesus as well. So they had some great leaders. They had apostolic leaders. They had apostles um, that were instructing that church. And Jesus commended them. He said, you guys are doing well. You're laboring hard. Um, you're enduring a lot of hardships, but you are doing what I have called you to do. But they were doing it more out of duty than they were love. They, the, their love, their only condemnation Jesus had towards them is that their love was growing cold. They've left their first love. You don't love me like you used to. And, um, and you know, we're going to fall into that trap of just doing ministry, just doing what he's called us to do, just more out of duty than anything. And there's nothing wrong with serving out of duty. But he wants our duty, our responsibilities to be rooted and grounded in our love for him and and faith that worketh by love. Faith works by love. Faith reveals itself by love. That's what he expects. Not just serving him with our head and our hands, but with our heart. And if we sink into that pattern where we're just doing it because we have to do it or because we're supposed to do it, um, that's a dangerous place to be. Because when our love grows cold for the things of God, um, it'll grow for the things of the world. When your love grows cold for the things of God, it'll begin to grow warmer for the things of the world. And you'll be ripe for the tempter to come along and drag you away. Smyrna, what we talked about last week, Jesus said that they were poor. Um, They were living in abject poverty. Um, They were being persecuted um, immensely. um, But that they were also rich uh, and would be rewarded. They were righteous in their dealings and would be rewarded. Now, there are only two churches in these letters that Jesus had no condemnation for. There was nothing that he had to correct in those churches. And that is the church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia that we'll study later. Um, This church was physically poor. Um, Persecution in, in, in their life was intense. But Jesus said, you have everything that you need. All I need you to do is don't fear. We sang a bunch of songs about fear this morning. Don't fear and be faithful. Just keep doing what you're doing, and I'm going to give you the reward um, that I've promised to you. Now, I had not talked a whole lot about this because 
Sometimes it's a little bit hard to follow, and sometimes I think it's a stretch to put it together. But the historical perspectives of these churches are interesting. See, these were, three, these were seven churches that really did exist at that time that had pastors that these letters were being sent to. Um, the application can be made to any church at any time or any Christian at any time in history. They're there for all of us. It's not just there for the, the letter to Ephesus. wasn't just for Ephesus. It was for anybody and everybody that might be have lost their first love. The letter to the church of Smyrna wasn't just for the church of Smyrna. It's for anybody who may um, be in poverty or be persecuted. I promise you there's some churches on the other side of the world um, that love that letter to the church at Smyrna. Um, because they're living in a place that we're not living and experiencing things that we're not experiencing. And they, and they love the promises um, that Jesus made to them um, that there would come an end to their tribulation and that, that, that they would overcome and that they would never be hurt by the second death. So uh, it's, it's appropriate at any time, anywhere, for any people. But the historical perspective says that these seven Churches also may represent a period of church history. And I'll, I just think it's interesting, so I'm going to hit on it real quick. Um, because the first three or four really do make a lot of sense. And then it gets a little bit more ambiguous as far as my understanding of it. But historically, the church at Ephesus was apostolic. There were still living apostles who were ministering and sowing into that church. And they were people that were still alive that had seen a resurrected Christ. And so they, they were not moving away from their faith at all, they were just moving away from the reasons that they did what they did. The church at Smyrna represents historically a period of intense hatred. The apostles had died out. Um, John, the last apostle that lived. And, um, and the church saw a measure of persecution between 100 A.D. and 312 A.D. that it had never seen before. Uh, over 5 million Christians were slaughtered by the Roman Empire and by the Jewish government um, because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing more than that these people would not renounce their faith. If you've never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, I would encourage you uh, to read that. Some of it was written. I closed the sermon last week with the martyrdom, the martyrdom of Polycarp, who was probably the pastor at the church at Smyrna, and how he had lived 86 years, and he said, I'm not about to deny him uh, today. And Polycarp was burned at the stake. I, I would encourage you to go read that. You can look it up online. But they said that, you know, a, a body burning usually smells awful. Cindy's dad in the sheriff's department said um, one of the smells that he will never, ever, ever forget is a decomposing body and a body that has been burned. It's like it gets in your nostrils. Um, but, the, but the people who witnessed the martyrdom of Polycarp said that his body smelled like fresh-baked bread. A sweet-smelling savor unto the Lord that he participated in the sufferings of Christ. I just thought that was interesting. Um, Pergamos is where we're going to be looking at today. And, and this may sound strange, but hopefully it'll make sense before we get done. Um, there's a, a lot of people have a, a lot of different names for these churches or a lot of different descriptions. But to me, this is the church that was getting along, but they were also going along. Look with me at verse 12. The angel of the church, unto uh, the angel of the church at Pergamos write, These things saith he, which hath a sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, 
who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. The church that is getting along, but going Alone, it's kind of striking to me that we're studying this on this particular date, and that might become aware to you, or might become more real to you in a few minutes. If you look at this church from a historical perspective, it probably represents the the era of time in church history when the church was actually popular um, in the world that it existed in, um, from about 312 A.D. to 606 when Rome married itself to the church, when Constantine became a Christian and Christianized the Roman Empire. Um, And so the church immediately went from a state of being persecuted and living in abject poverty to now being popular and to now being possessing some of the greatest riches in the world when Rome and the church married itself together. Now, Pergamos was not in a commercial city. Those other two came out of very commercialized cities, port cities, And Pergamos was not a commercial city, but it was a very religious city. I didn't say Christian, I said religious. It was full of idolatrous statues. Archaeology has dug up a lot of this stuff. It was full of altars. It was full of false gods. It was full of pagan cults and pagan shrines. And um, I've looked at several different lists this week, and a lot of it were the Greek gods, Zeus, and and uh, Athena and some of those. But the list is endless. This was a very much a... A city that was just full of any kind of religion that you can imagine. Um, mostly pagan religions. But even in the heart of um, such pagan religious experience, God planted a church there. A church right in the midst of all of that um, idolatry and paganism. The other thing this city was for, which, which is strange that it's happening today. <laughs> I didn't plan this like this. But the other thing that this city was known for is it had the second largest library in all the world. Um, Second only to Alexandria. 200,000 volumes um, in this library. The king of that city has been credited with the invention of parchment for writing. It went, the progression of writing has been papyrus, parchment, paper. Papyrus was a reed, um, parchment was animal skin. And the paper that we have now is a derivative of, of wood or, or, or some other form of, of plant. This king was credited with the advancement of writing and had the lar- second largest library in the world there. Now, here's what Jesus, this is all interesting to me how this all fits together. Jesus described himself, first thing he did in every church letter was first pointing the church back to himself. That's a good lesson for all of us. When, when, we need to, when we want to see how we measure up and what he would have us to do, we need to look at Jesus. And so every letter, Jesus begins by calling the church's attention back to himself. And he described himself as the one that has the sharp sword with two edges. In other words, it is a sword that will cut both ways. 
And if you look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, the Bible tells us that this sword, when John had this vision and was given um, these instructions to pass along to these churches, um, Revelation chapter 1, verse 16 says that sword comes out of Jesus' mouth. So this sword is God's word. There's, there's, there's no doubt whatsoever that the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth is, is a representation of, a symbol of, actually even the very substance of God's word. Jesus said, I only say what the Father told me to say. I'm giving you what the Father gave me. So when Jesus speaks, he speaks as the word of God. And, and listen, I'm, I'm, I'm going to chase a rabbit for just a second. There's a lot of people that are telling you a lot of things today about Jesus didn't have anything to say about this or that. Because it's not found in the gospel, so Jesus didn't say it. Can I tell you that every word that, that, that is written in the pages of this scripture came from the mouth of Jesus? Because the Bible says he is the word of God. He is the living word of God. If this Bible says it, Jesus spoke it. And men wrote it. So we don't have to have it just in the Gospels. If it's written in the Old Testament, if it's written in the New Testament, if it's written in the Epistles, or if it's written in the book of Revelation, it is the Word of Jesus. He is the Word of God. He has the sword of truth in His mouth. And that, and that sword goes forth in mercy and grace. Thank God that it does. But it also goes forth in justice and in judgment. The sword cuts both ways. And the Bible refers to it as a hammer that breaks, um, as a sword that divides. It is, one, it is a separator and it is a purifier. Um, it, it cuts us asunder. It separates bone and marrow. It separates flesh and spirit. When we read the Word of God, it will divide us. The Bible says, um, Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace on earth. I came to bring a sword. It is a sword that divides. It is a sword that sets us sometimes in contention with other people because of the truth of what Jesus said and the error of what people believe. And I want to be honest with you. Nobody will ever come to the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ until they know first the bad news that they need him the bad news that they're a sinner that they're lost that they're undone that they're on their way to a devil's hell and when you get a good understanding of how bad the bad news is it makes the good news so much sweeter and so much easier to grab a hold of and cling to with all of your life so Jesus commended this church and, and I think it's important to note that he said twice in that, that you are where Satan lives. I have planted this church in the middle of a city that is full of idolatry, full of immorality, full of pagan worship, pagan shrines, pagan altars, full of mythology. And, and he described this place as where Satan's seat is. That is, Satan has authority here. That's what a seat means. He has a place of authority and he dwells here. He's he not just passing by for a visit. Satan lives in this place. But notice what he commended them for. You have held on to my name and my faith. I know right where you live. I know Satan lives there. I know Satan has authority there. But I commend you in that even though you're living in such an awful place at an awful time, you hold fast my name and you hold fast my faith. So their profession of faith was pure. The practice of their faith 
was pure. They were living out the word of God uh, in that church. So you might say of them that they were getting along well. I mean, what, what more could you ask for than to say, you're, you're holding on to my name and to my faith, and I commend you for that because you're living in an awful place at an awful time. An interesting thing that he mentioned there, um, that, that man Antipas, who was a martyr, who was part of the church there, Listen, I've read and studied all week and looked at what other people said and, 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 and the people have interpreted his name to mean different things. Some have interpreted it to mean um, anti-pa, um, against the Father. And some have interpreted it to mean against all that are not of the Father. And some have interpreted it to mean a likeness of the Father. I don't know who's right in that. This is what stood out to me about Antipas. Nobody seems to know who he was. Really no historical record of a man that died in this church by that name. And here's what that tells me. There have been a lot of people throughout history who may seem insignificant and unmentionable in, his, in, in the historical chronicles of this world, but Jesus knows them by name. And marks their faithfulness. Can I tell you something? This world may not ever know your name. Our names may never be written down in a history book as anybody that's done anything great. But if we will hold fast his name and his faith, he knows our name. And he makes note of what we have suffered and what we have done for his cause. So this was a church that stood out from the culture that surrounded them. This is a church that was standing in the midst of a culture that was absolutely, completely overcome by the enemy, yet they were standing strong in their belief and in their behavior for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's good, isn't it? I read something years ago, I never forgot, it made perfect sense to me then, it makes perfect sense to me now, even a dead fish can swim downstream. Even a dead fish can go with the flow. But if you, really, if you really want to mark yourself as being different, go upstream. Go against the flow. Rub against the culture. I, I read something somebody posted about Leonard Ravenhill, um, great evangelist. Of, I think, no, it was Vance Havner. They were posting, it was a, it was a story that, that Vance Havner told, great evangelist of yesterday who, who preached at a church one morning. And, a, and he made a lady mad in the church. And, um, and so she greeted him at the door and she said, you, rub, you rubbed the cat the wrong way this morning. And he said, turn the cat around. <laughs> Sometimes the word of God is going to rub us the wrong way. It just means we need to turn our life around so that it doesn't rub us the wrong way. Every church and every Christian should be willing to go against the flow in their belief and behavior. Jesus knows that and Jesus notes that. Now, here's what he criticizes the church for. They, they had it right in their belief and they had it right in their behavior. They were corporately getting along well as far as Jesus were concerned. But specifically, Jesus criticizes this church for not holding its members accountable. Jesus criticizes this church for letting people be a part of it 
that were holding contrary and conflicting doctrines unto his word. They were believing wrong and behaving badly and this church was tolerating it. This I have against you, he said, because you have them there, where? In the church at Pergamos who hold to the doctrine of Balaam and to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, everything that I've read kind of blends these two together in that the that the doctrine of Balaam is the Old Testament story. Y'all remember that this pagan king hired Balaam, um, who, who supposedly um, had, had an unction from the Lord and, could, and could, could cast spells, could curse, could bless. Anyway, this king says, I want to hire you to curse Israel. And, um, and Balaam came back and said, I can't. I can't. I can't curse what God has blessed, and I can't bless what God has cursed. That's impossible for me to do. And Balak was furious, but he was offering Balaam a huge reward. He said, if you'll do this, I'll, I'll give you this. And so Balaam wanted the reward, even though he knew that it was impossible for him to bring a curse against the nation that God had blessed. So here's what he did instead. He enticed the nation of Israel to intermarry themselves with the Midianites. Um, the Midianites had apparently some beautiful women, and so he enticed the men to marry um, Midianite women. He enticed the Midianite women to marry... Um, the men, this was, this was all his plan, uh, essentially to bring a curse against the nation because of their own behaviors. And you can go read the story in the book of Numbers. This is the one that got me in trouble that got a spear brought in here after me. But, but because of, their, because of their, their dabbling in idolatry, which led itself to immorality, they were, all, they were 20-something thousand men died as a result of a plague that God brought upon them for their immorality. And then that man by the name of Phineas, while the rest of the nation was trying to repent of their failure, that man named Phineas saw a, a Midianite woman and a Jewish man go into a tent. Um, and, and Phineas went in behind them and ran a spear through them. And God held him a hero because he stayed the plague. So when you look at these two groups of people, they're doing the same type stuff. Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans were, they were, their, their, their doctrines were lawlessness. And that God has separated the spirit and the flesh and that what you do in the flesh has no effect on your spirit and that you can live this way uh, in your flesh and you can live another way in your spirit and what God recognizes as a spirit life, not the flesh life. Um, he, they treated the human body like it. you could totally divide it into two sections and one could serve God and the other could serve itself. That's not true. It was a libertine antinomian sect, both of them were, who dabbled in um, idolatrous practices, eating the meat that was offered to idols, engaging themselves in sexual immorality. And, 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 um, and, and God said that you're tolerating this doctrine in your midst and I am. Uh, this is what I have against you. You will not hold people in your congregation of, of believers accountable for their beliefs and their behaviors when they're contrary to my instruction. They were tolerant. When, when, when the church in Rome married, there, there, there came along very shortly thereafter a doctrine of indulgences. That you can get away with certain things if you buy indulgences. That you can go sow your wild oats as long as you pay the church for what you've done. It's also interesting to me that that term, Nicolaitan, 
is actually two, it's a compound word. And I, I do believe it was a sect that followed the teachings of Nicholas who was a Gentile convert to Judaism and then a Jewish convert to Christianity who was one of the first of seven deacons that was appointed. Everything that I've read about it points to him as being the founder of this group. He decided, I like Christianity, but I don't like the rules of it and I don't like some of the principles of it. I, I do like my, my pagan roots and so I want to be a Christian, but I want to dabble in idolatry. I want to go to the temple when I want to go to the, the pagan temple, when I want to go to the pagan temple, and I want to be sexually immoral when I want to be sexually immoral. And he, and he got a group of people together that, that did those things. But Nicolaitan, which comes out of Nicholas, also means, Nico means con, uh, conquer, and, and Laetan means laity. And so literally his name and this doctrine means to conquer the people, to conquer the laity, to conquer the people that sit in the pews, um, with this temptation of serving the flesh while still claiming to live in the Spirit. So here's their compromise. Here's Jesus' criticism of this church. They put love and acceptance above truth and obedience. You hear what I'm saying to you? Now, I'm going to tell you, if you went out in the streets of our culture today and asked Christians, I, I promise you the culture would be almost 100% behind this, but what's sad is about 90% of Christians will get behind this. If you went out into this world and just started interviewing people randomly and say, what do you think the greatest quality a person could have is? The two words that would come up the most frequently are love and tolerance. And, and a lot of them say love mean tolerance, that you just, that you just love everybody regardless. And, and in that, even in that description, it is that you don't say anything about the way that they're living or what they're believing that you tolerate. Tolerance has become the highest virtue in our culture. And what is that all about? It's about going alone. It's about not rocking the boat. It's about not making anybody angry. It's about not being an offense to anybody. So when, when we compromise by putting love and acceptance above truth and obedience, the Bible said Jesus hates that. He said that he hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now we read about it when we read about Ephesus. He said he hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. He said, I commend you for this because you hate what they're doing and I hate it too. And now he's pointing to the church at Pergamos and said, and I hate that doctrine. I hate these doctrines that are creeping into the church that you are now guilty of not calling out, not holding accountable. You are allowing these doctrines to permeate the church. And, and if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and chapter 6, it makes it abundantly clear um, that the Lord Jesus Christ um, expects us to hold ourselves accountable within his body. Jesus criticized them because they did not hold their membership accountable. He challenges that church. There's a repent. He tells them to repent. What does repent mean? It means to have a change of mind that results in a change of direction. So what is, what's, what's he got against them? You're not holding your members accountable. So, so what does he mean when he says repent right after that? He means it's time for you to hold people accountable. It's time for you to change your mind about this business 
of letting people preach and teach whatever they want to preach and teach and practice in the church, it's time for you to repent of that and to hold these people accountable. And then he issues an or else. And or else, if you don't repent, I will fight against them with my with the sword of my mouth. So the challenge is this. You deal with them people before I deal with those folks. If you don't do this, I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them. Now, Jesus didn't imply there that he's going to fight the whole church. Because they're holding on to his name and they're holding on to their, their practice as a church is commendable. They're getting along well. What he's condemning them for is for going along. And what he's calling them to do is deal with that or I will deal with that. So here's, here's the church's responsibility. You either got to, you, you've got to confront those folks. And the Bible gives a prescription for that in Matthew chapter 18. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 deals with it too. That if you see somebody in the congregation of believers who claims to be a believer and who is part of that body. We don't have to judge the world. We don't have to judge the people around the church. But we have to protect the purity of the church by taking a look at ourselves. Not digging in people's lives. But when somebody is engaged in something that's obviously public and obviously wrong, we have a responsibility to go to them one-on-one and talk with them about that error. If they won't receive that, then we take two or three with us from the church. And then if they won't receive that, then you take the, then you take the matter and you bring it before the church as a whole. And church discipline is that you disfellowship your you, that you disfellowship those people from the church. That they can't hold membership, that they can't hold positions, that they can't hold authority. They're welcome to sit in a pew every Sunday, but they won't have an opportunity to teach that doctrine and preach that doctrine because we've separated ourselves from them. That's biblical. And listen to me, I don't care whether you like it or not. That's what the Bible prescribes. And I will tell you right up front that I don't like it any more than you do. That is my least favorite thing to ever have to do as a church. It is my least favorite thing to do as a pastor. I hate conflict. I hate confrontation. You might think by the way that I preach that I don't, but I'm telling you, it's easier to preach to a crowd of people and to say, thus saith the Lord, than it is to sit down in front of somebody with an open Bible and say, this is what the Lord says. But Jesus said, if you don't deal with them, I'm going to come fight with them. Now, church discipline always has as its purpose is twofold. The first is to protect the purity of the church, the testimony of the church. And the second, I don't know that this is a priority situation, um, but it, it is to protect, the, it is to not bring reproach to the name of Christ and that church. But secondly, it is to bring the erring, if he is truly a Christian, If that man or that woman has truly made a profession of faith in Christ, to be separated from the body is the most awful thing that can happen to us. And so when we breach fellowship with them, that settles into their heart and they want to be back with the body and they know that in order to to connect themselves with the body, they've got to get in line with the body's beliefs and behaviors. And so the purpose of church discipline is correction. If you read Hebrews chapter 12, why does God whip his children? To correct them. And if you want to take that to the church level, why does the church deal with errant members? Well, either it's going to prove that they are not who they say they are, or it's going to correct them and bring them back in right standing with the church and with the head of the church who is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Um, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and, 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 and chapter 6 make it abundantly clear that the Lord Jesus Christ, in spite of what you hear people saying, the Lord Jesus Christ expects us to judge ourselves and to judge the church and to make corrections to the church as it needs to be corrected. Not to love and tolerate and accept anything and everything that comes along, but to hold each other accountable. He challenged the church. Deal with them before I do. Now, I think we always ought to be a mouthpiece for Christ. And we're a mouthpiece for Christ when we say what he said. And when we do what he did. If you think Jesus was, I understand that God had a plan that he had to die on the cross. But why were people angry with Jesus? Why did people kill Jesus? Why did they want him dead? Why did they want him silenced? Why did they try to stifle the voice of the church early on? Jesus said it in John chapter 3. We just don't read, beyond, we don't read far beyond John 3, 16. But, but, but Jesus said the world loves the darkness that they're living in. And so when we begin to shine light in it, because their deeds are evil, they'll begin to hate us for it. Because they hated him for it. Listen, they didn't kill Jesus because he was a really nice guy who loved and tolerated and accepted everybody. They killed Jesus because he, because he had the audacity to call it what it was. To straighten out what had been made crooked. But, but let me, and listen, I, I got one more point. But, but you, you need to understand this. Jesus is going to protect the purity of his church. Because this church has his commission. Satan's doing everything he can to stifle the testimony of the church. He is. He's trying to squash us. He's trying to shut us down. He's trying to shut us up. He's trying to drive us in a corner. Jesus will do everything that he can to protect the purity of his church. And that may come in a more drastic form of discipline than the church could ever exercise. And I ain't going to say a whole lot here. If we could dig, I could dig this hole very deep. But, G, but the scripture does talk about a sin that is unto death. And if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where they're, where they're going over what was happening in the Lord's Supper and how some of them folks in the church at Corinth were making a mockery and were getting drunk and seeing who could eat the most, gluttons. And the Apostle Paul said to that church, who would not correct their mistakes, including their sexual immorality, their false doctrines. That's the whole reason for 1 Corinthians. But he said, the Apostle Paul wrote, that because of the abuses that are going on in this church, many of you are sick and weak and some are dying. Because Christ will protect the purity of his church. Even if we won't, he will. And then there's that consolation that comes. That if they'll do what he said to do, if they'll exercise due diligence in purging false doctrines and sinful doings, he consoles them with the promise of his favor. Now, I'm, I'll say this before I even go into it. I don't know what he means by all these terms. He, I'm going to give you hidden manna. And I'm going to give you a white stone. And in that white stone, you're going to have a new name written that there ain't nobody but, but the one that gave it to you going to know about. I've read all kinds of stuff. 
And I ain't one to speculate a whole lot when it comes to this stuff. But I think Jesus simply consoles them with this thought. I, if you will do what I'm asking you to do, I give you the promise of my favor. I give you the promise of my blessing. I give you the promise of my grace. Now what is manna? Here, here's what I believe manna represents. It sustains us. That's what manna did in the wilderness. And so here's what Jesus said to us. I'll be your bread. I'm going to be your bread of life. I'm going to be your hidden manna. I'm going to give you what you need to do what I've called you to do. I believe I can prove that in all other places in God's word. That that manna is God's promise that you might have to walk through the wilderness. But I'm going to take care of you. The, the, the clearest reference I can find to a white stone is, is a... When they used to do the jury system, and, and by the way, we patterned a lot of our judicial system out of ancient Rome, and so this was pretty well known then, and, but this is the way they did things. The jury would carry rocks, black rock or a white rock. The black rock would mean guilty. The white rock would mean acquitted. You, you were either indicted by that black rock or you were acquitted and set free by the white rock. And so I think the white rock probably means that if you'll do this, you will no longer be guilty of any offense in my eyes. You already got a lot going on. You got a lot that I commend you for. And the way that you're living, where you're living, makes it all the more special. But you've got to deal with this problem. And if you do that, I will acquit you. I will, I will let you go. Now there's another interpretation of that that says a white stone was often a ticket that somebody gave to somebody it was if you carried a white stone in your pocket you could get into any event it was like a disney world fast pass it was like you 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 just skip the rest of the line and go ahead you know it was that kind of pass i don't know which one of them it represents but i think both of them represent god's favor and a new name just means intimacy with god i ain't gonna tell you what my name for cindy is all right yeah mm-hmm. No, that ain't. See, that's the name that y'all know, but I got a name for her that just, I know. Ain't that what he said? In that stone will be a name written that only the one that gave it to you will know. And that to me just implies that if you do what I've called you to do, you'll have intimacy with me that nobody else will understand or know. So, so let me just close by saying this. If it ever needs to be said, it needs to be said now. Being tolerant of error is not noble. It's just not. What does the Bible say sets us free? Sets a man free. Truth. So if we tolerate error, the people that are walking in error will never embrace truth. And they will never be set free. We're not doing anybody any favors by tolerating and accepting error when it comes to what God said, what God meant. I I said this this morning in the post, but I'm going to say it again this morning. You've got to understand, Satan is in the business of evangelizing the world too. Now his evangelism is is to turn them away from the truth. To turn them to an error. He is, the Bible says that he is a liar and the father of lies. Guess who Jesus is? He is the truth and the source of all truth. And so, listen, Satan is in this world right now doing everything he can to, to, to win everybody over to his way of thinking. 
And if we don't counter that with truth, then we'll never rescue those that are perishing. Is everybody going to hear what we have to say? Absolutely not. And they never have and they never will. The Bible says that people will always have an ear that won't hear. They'll always see and won't see. Um, they'll, 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 they'll see it and hear it like everybody else is seeing and hearing it, but they won't understand it. And the Bible tells us one of the reasons for that is because they have pleasure in their wickedness and God gives them over to strong delusion because they would rather live in wickedness than, than, than hear and believe the truth that could change them and set them free. Romans chapter 1 says the same thing. They knew the truth about God, um, but, but, they, but they suppressed the truth uh, in unrighteousness. They suppressed their, the truth by their ungodly living and so God gave them up and professing themselves to be wise they became fools I'm going to tell you we're living in a world that's full of error and full of people who profess to be wise but are acting so foolishly and contrary to the nature and to the purpose and to the word of God tolerance of error is never ever ever noble it's not a virtue we got where we are today because we've walked down that path we are living where Satan sits and where he dwells. And I know that we can look at ourselves and say, oh, we, we, we're getting along pretty well, but we will have the same condemnation against us that Pergamos had against them if we tolerate error. Jesus wants us to hate what he hates. And what Jesus hates is what is destroying people's lives for time and eternity. Do you understand that? Jesus don't hate people. Jesus hates the thing that is destroying people's lives and people's eternity with him. And error in believing and in behaving is at the top of his list. I, I don't get all those rewards and I'm not going to pretend to tell you what all, they, they're, they're mysterious more so than some of the other rewards that are mentioned in this. But even those rewards may be mysterious to us, the implication is not mysterious and that is simply this. If we will stand for Jesus... And for his truth, even in the place where Satan is sitting and dwelling, then Jesus will stand with us and for us. Winston Churchill said this, and I'm done. An appeaser is one who feeds a crocodile, hoping it will eat him last. You just chew on that, all right? You've seen this happen in our culture. You've seen this happen to churches. The more you tolerate something, the more you appease that, the, 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 you, you feed it and strengthen it until you're the last target on the menu. And we live in there right now. The sword of truth today is God's word and it will convict and convince people right now. That's what the Spirit will use the Word of God to do today. 
It will convict people of sin and convince them of righteousness. If they do not respond to the conviction, if they're not convinced of the, the truth, then the last thing that the sword of truth will do is condemn them. Revelation chapter 19 verse 21 gives us a verse that Jesus has come back on his horse and, and the sword that comes out of his mouth will be, it will slay the wicked and the unbelieving. So knowing that truth is our tolerance and acceptance of error really loving it all? Knowing it never has been and never will be. This is the day that we got to stand up and speak truth. Every day is. As our musicians come and we stand together, Lord, I thank you for your word. <clears throat> I feel like some days when I get up that we are, that we are living in Pergamos. That we're living in a post-Christian America. That we're living in a culture that's hell-bent on opposing your word. And, and sadly enough, just like the church at Corinth, just like the church at Pergamos was in danger of, and we see it coming full circle in the next letter to the next church, that what's tolerated one day as a belief will be accepted and celebrated the next day as a practice and, and we've seen it happen in, we've seen it happen to individual churches to individual Christians we've seen entire denominations go down this path and it's true you can, we can look back over the course of history and see that there were once strong biblical Christ centered nations who succumbed to the deception of the enemy and were destroyed and so Lord help us to understand I know that I, I, I get the same feeling I'm sure every one of us in this when we try to stand for the truth and people start hurling those accusations at us and call us all manner of despicable names and accuse us of being filled with hate and Lord we know that isn't true and you know that isn't true. Help us to be who you've called us to be. Lord, help us in this, inside this building, inside this body of believers. Help us to hold each other accountable. Not in maliciousness, but in love, in concern, in compassion. Um, there, there have been times in our life where every one of us have gotten astray. We have gone astray. Lord, we ought to be thankful that we have family and friends who love us enough to help us find a way back to your truth. I just pray this, this invitation, Lord, that you would do whatever that you want to do. If there's somebody here that's lost and they know they're lost, they know that they're going along with the culture, they're swimming downstream with the rest, they're, they're caught up in the error, they're caught up in the lies, they're caught up in, in bad beliefs and bad behaviors. Whatever the case may be, Lord, I pray that you'd call them to yourself today. Challenge them and convict them and change them. You did that for the Apostle Paul when he was hell-bent on stomping the church out of existence.
and then became his greatest advocate. Change takes place when we come to Jesus. And I pray if somebody here today is lost, they'd come to Jesus here right now. Lord, help us. We need you. We've sat back in this community, in this Bible Belt of America, and we've looked at what's going on in other parts of the land, and we have assumed falsely that Satan's seat is somewhere else, and that he'd never take up a dwelling among us, and yet he has. And, And right now, it looks like hundreds are being deceived, maybe thousands even. If we don't step up and stand up and speak out right now, Lord, there may, there may truly come a day in the very near future that we're the minority. Because we sat in silence for too long. I just pray you'd add your blessing. I don't know of a, a more appropriate, timely, relevant message that we need to hear in this day that we live in than this letter to the church at Pergamos. So help us to hear it. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the dark of the midnight, I altered my
you will. God's always had a remnant of people. It don't matter what the nation of Israel faced. It don't matter what the church has faced. God has always had a remnant of his people that stood with him and for him that he's kept safe and used. And he'll still do the same. Listen, I'm be honest, I, I get weary. Even though the Bible tells me not to get weary in well-doing, I get weary. I was reading the other day about David's mighty men and that man named Eleazar. He said everybody left him. Philistines came in and the nation of Israel ran away. But the Bible said that his hand claved to the, he, he was he got he got weary in the battle. He was fighting the Philistines by himself. But that his hand claved to the sword. He, he wouldn't turn it loose. He wouldn't quit until the battle was won. Can I tell you, we need Christians whose hands gonna cleave to the sword. Amen. Just hang on. Just stand. Just speak. That's all God requires of us. Some folks will be saved because we have been bold enough to tell them the truth. But I promise you this, nobody will be saved if we are not bold enough to proclaim to them the truth. And, and you get this in your head, God deals, God deals with sinners differently. The Bible says if you are broken and contrite and you recognize your sin for what it is, then God deals with you um, in mercy and in grace. He, he will dwell with the sinner that is broken about his sin. But if you're going to be proud and obstinate and rebellious and not admit your sin, then God's going to deal with you with, just, with judgment and with justice. And you find that all through God's Word. How to, those sinners that came to Jesus, everybody likes to talk about, he ate with sinners, he drank with sinners, he dined with sinners. He did, and guess what? Most of them became his first followers. They came to him demon-possessed, and he met them where they were and delivered. They came to him with immoral lives, and the woman that came to him caught in the very act of adultery. The woman at the well that he found that had such an immoral life. What happened? They met Jesus, and it changed them. It changed them because they were broken over themselves and over their sin, and he responded to them in mercy and grace. He'll still do that today. We're going to ask the blessing over the food. If you're in here and you're, I, I'm just going to say this, if you consider yourself a senior citizen and you're over 55, you want to go ahead and start easing out toward the front of the table. If you can't stand up for a long time and wait in the line, go ahead. Alvin, look at him fixing to jump out here. He about ain't 55 yet. Mr. Harold, if you want to go, you going to eat with us? You go back and fix your plate and take it to Jennifer. Rusty cooked barbecue for us. If ain't no barbecue on the table, there's some in the refrigerator and some on the table back there. So get you some barbecue sauce to go on. Sarah brought her world famous, is it King's Hawaiian Rolls or what? <laughs> What'd you bring? You didn't buy old great value stuff, did you? All right. Sarah may have failed this morning. She's always been known for bringing the best buns. But maybe not. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the day, for your word. It's hard sometimes, and it is, a, it is a double-edged sword. It cuts us coming and going sometimes, but I'm glad that it does. I'm glad you love us enough to correct us, discipline us. I wouldn't have said it then, but I'm thankful I was raised in the home. My daddy would cut my tail for me every time I needed it. And sometimes I hated him for it, but I look back now, and I love him for loving me that way. Had he not been that kind of daddy, my life has been so much different than it is today. Thank you for being 
that daddy, that father. Pray that you'd bless our time together in fellowship today. Pray to bless the ladies as they endeavor to, to, um, to help serve others in this community, that you bless the auction part of it, that you bless the food to bring nourishment to our bodies and the fellowship to draw us closer to each other and closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.